Good morning, everybody. As we begin, thank you for that welcome good morning back. I was, I was in Florida last week for my brother's ordination to gospel ministry, and so I missed being with you. It's always different when I'm not here, uh, but it was great to celebrate with them and, and, and see another Cobb uh, young man be ordained and experience 96 degrees in utter just awful humidity. So, so grateful to be in Michigan today. I love it. Um, I want to ask you a question as we begin. Um, if you had one sermon to preach one message to teach, one conversation to be had with someone, what would be the topic of that conversation? What would you talk about? Rhetorical question to you. Peter, who we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 2, like Pastor Clint said, at the end of this whole glossolalia, speaking in tongues thing, everybody's going, what is going on? And Peter says, I want to tell you what this is all about. And he's got maybe one shot here to preach to a bunch of people who he may not see until the next Jewish feast. But he wants to help make sense of what is going on. And there's something called the kerygma, all right? And it comes from a word in Greek that means uh, announcement or herald. It comes from the word caruso, I believe, which means announcement or herald or to preach. And historically throughout Christianity, this has been something that involves a couple different things. Uh, I'm going to kind of summarize it for you. You'll see different, slightly different modifications uh, depending on where you go. But this is kind of based off of William Barclay's points. All the points are the same. It's just how they express it is sometimes a little different. The first point is this, is that, that there's proof that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. All right? That's one part of this kind of announcement or herald of of, um, of Peter's message. Um, the second is that in Messiah, a new age has come. And I love how Barclay says it. He says, Jesus is the hinge of history. In other words, between the time when Jesus, well, before Jesus and after Jesus, something fundamentally changed with how we respond and we interact with God. Okay? So that's an, another important part of it. Um, the next one is that Jesus was born of David's line he uh, taught the scriptures, he performed miracles, he was crucified, he was raised to life, and even now he is seated at the right hand of God in power and authority. Um, the next one is that Christ will return to rule and to reign. And then the last one is this, and this is kind of a, a great summative one, um, that salvation is found only in Jesus. Upon salvation, believers receive the promised Holy Spirit. All right, so those are five things, just kind of really quick, ground you in. And as we go through the book of Acts chapter 2, not the book, the chapter of Acts chapter 2, look for those things. Look to see how Peter pulls out those principles within his message to his hearers. And so if you had to summarize Peter's message, you could summarize it this. I'll use his words. In verse 36, I believe, is, is where it happens. He says, brothers, you can know for certain... You can know for certain, no, no shadow of doubt, no will it happen. But he says, you can know for certain, brothers, that, G, that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. All right, so that, there's kind of our starting point. And I want to invite my friend Annie to come up. She's going to help us read scripture this morning. And because Acts chapter 2 is kind of a nice unified whole, we're going to reread Acts 1 through 13, and then we're going to pick up in 14, and we're going to go to the end of 36. So I'm going to help read um, all the weird names that occur in here, and, and then Annie's going to help us read starting in verse 22. Would you stand with me? Us. Would you stand with us? In honor of the scripture, Acts chapter 2 says this. 
When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages, as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. They were all astounded and amazed, saying to one another, what could this be? But some sneered and said, they are full of new wine. But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, he says, Men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days. And they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Go for it. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with, the, with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David was, 
did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make an, your enemies a footstool to your feet. Therefore, let all Israelites be assured of this. God has made Je this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Amen. God, may you bless the reading of your word. May the word not be words that we just hear, but words that take hold within our hearts. For the sake of your great name, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Annie. Awesome job. All right, so in case you were not here last week like me, uh, just a little bit of background to help get us into our section for today. The disciples are gathered in one place, we find out. There's a unity within this community. In Acts chapter 1, uh, we find that they're in Jerusalem and they're united in prayer. There's a Godwardness that, that, that is evident within this group of disciples. Now, the most likely location for this occurrence is the Temple Mount, um, given the time of year and given the space needed for all of these people to hear. Later in the text, we'll, we'll study next week, over 3,000 people, around 3,000 people come to believe that Jesus is both Messiah and Lord. And that's a lot of place, and it's also Pentecost. And so I've got some, some photos to help you and, um, and kind of see where this is at. Um, Shavuot, there is your, there's your like big picture. You can see like the gold dome. That's where, that's where the temple would have been. That's where the Dome of the Rock currently is today. So this is kind of a, a weird cloud formation in Jerusalem. This happens at the festival of Shavuot, or Pentecost. Uh, both names essentially are the same thing. One is Greek, one is Hebrew. Shavuot is the second of the great pilgrim feasts. Now, there are seven major feasts within, Jerusalem, or within Judaism. Um, I think we have this on a, on a slide up there, too, so you can kind of see them. You see there's spring holidays and there's fall holidays. We are in uh, kind of the first big one is Passover. Many of you know about Passover. Passover commemorates commemorates the death of, well, it commemorates them coming out of Egypt. It also commemorates, for us, the death of Jesus the Messiah. It happened during Passover. Um, then there's unleavened bread in there, and then there's first fruits, and then we have, we have Pentecost, okay? Pentecost uh, is the second greatest feast in, in successive order of the biblical year here, that is. There's three great feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and then Tabernacles, which actually just happened recently here. Um, Shavuot, or Pentecost, was a time of great gathering, and it was required for Jewish men, along with those other two festivals I mentioned, for them to come to Jerusalem to give offerings and to give gifts uh, as worship to the Lord. If you want to look at that further, you can look in Deuteronomy 16. It's a great place for that. Um, there's a quote here that I found helpful just to help get in my mind a picture of what this day would have been like from a cultural perspective. Uh, one uh, historian says this. This is from um, the Jewish Publication Society, the JPS Guide to Traditions here. He says, Coming at the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat crop, one biblical name for Shavuot is Hag HaKatzir. There won't be a test later. That's just information for you. And it's a harvest festival. The festival is also known as Yom HaBikarim, the day of first fruits, when joyful pilgrims would march to Jerusalem to offer baskets of their first ripe fruits and bread baked from the newly harvested wheat. A remarkable transformation of the festival took place in rabbinic times when Shavuot, Pentecost, became observed as the anniversary of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. So you remember 
going, going back into the biblical story, you have Passover, God leading his people out of Egypt, and then you have 50 days later is what in rabbinic times they came to celebrate as God giving the Torah on Mount Sinai, which happened shortly after Israel came out of Egypt. Um, what happens in Acts chapter 2 is that the Holy Spirit comes upon these men. He enables them to speak in languages that the Jews and the Jewish converts would know even though they're from places outside of Jerusalem. They have ethnic backgrounds where they know, um, they know all these different languages. I won't go through all the, the different names there. You can look at them in, in the first couple of verses. But they're like, why is it that I hear my language from that place here spoken by, wait, they're Galileans. How is this possible? And, and so it's significant to note that the audience that is hearing and is participating in this, they're Jewish. All right, they're Jewish because no one else would be allowed on the Temple Mount, especially at this time. And you might remember in the text, Romans, for example, um, it says that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Acts follows this pattern very, very closely in the fact that the first kind of Gentile experience with the gospel doesn't come to about Acts chapter 10. I think it's with Cornelius. Here, Peter is speaking to Jews, all right? The first century church is Jewish. And so we are going to pick up this passage with all the strangeness that it has, with all the speaking in verse 14. Now, Peter is going to address this crowd, and, and it's 9 a.m., okay? Yours might say, I think, the third hour, depending on what translation you have. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. And he goes, brothers, it's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. You, you may not have a way to explain this, but let me help you understand what it is you are seeing and experiencing here today. And he even says, pay attention to my words. He doesn't want them to miss something. He, he doesn't want something to get lost in translation because what he says makes a big difference for their lives. All right? What he says makes a big difference for their lives. Pay attention because God is in this moment bringing an application from the book of Joel. The strange occurrence is not due to alcohol, Peter says, but due to a mighty work of God through the Holy Spirit. And it's something that the Hebrew scriptures um, foresee and foreshadow in several important ways. Now, Shavuot is celebrated, like I said, the anniversary of the giving of the Torah. The Torah is something that Paul calls holy, righteous, and good in the book of Romans. The Torah is something that the psalmist says, oh, how I love your Torah. I meditate on it day and night. The Torah, often translated in your English text, it can be translated law, it can be translated teaching, it can be translated um, Torah. It can, th there's numerous ways you can, you can take it. But what Torah has, th the importance of Torah is this. Living out of God's teaching, God's Torah, God's law, is a way that you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay? To the Jew, the Torah was not a bad thing. It was a good thing because it showed them how God wanted them to live. It gave them instruction for their lives. And so um, along with that, not only does it give instruction, the Torah also condemns you. <laughs> because in God teaching his people how, they want, how he wanted them to live, they saw the many ways in which they fell short of what God had called them to. So there's this kind of this kind of tension that, that takes place here. Um, Shavuot being celebrated as the anniversary of giving the Torah 
and then seeing the Holy Spirit come down is kind of a cool picture uh, in, in the Hebrew text. And let me, let me show this to you. God always wants people to love him the way he wants to be loved. He, he always wants, as Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my teaching. You'll obey my mitzvah, my, my commandments. That's, that's the way that we seek to love God. But God also knows that there is no way this side of his help that we can live this out without his power. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. So we have in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit coming down, who, who functions as a teacher, who functions as an indwelling presence, who functions as God, because he is God, in your life to help you choose what is right and to do what is right. And I want to show you, in Ezekiel 36, God talks about how he's going to sanctify his name or his reputation, and he's going to do this by cleansing his people from sin. And I think I have this passage up there, um, Dustin. Ezekiel 36 says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Even in the Hebrew scripture, God recognized that you and I cannot fully measure up to what he has called us to do. And that's why he says, you need a new heart. You need a new heart, and I'm going to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and I'm going to put my spirit within you to help you love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Another uh, passage that you might know from the Hebrew text is from the book of Jeremiah. When it talks about the new covenant, Jeremiah says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Yours might say law. The word there in Hebrew is Torah. I will put my Torah within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." So we have going back into the Hebrew scriptures, God saying, hey, there's coming a day when I'm going to place my spirit within you so that my Torah is not just something that's written down on stone, but it's something that's actually written upon your hearts so that you have the power and the ability through the working of my spirit to live it out. I don't know about you, but I find living out of God's teaching really difficult sometimes. Maybe that's just me. I remember, you know, we just finished studying the book of 1 Peter and several years ago, uh, we were down in Ohio, and I was, I was reading one morning, and I came across that lovely Peter phrase where it says, um, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. And I went, hang on a second, <laughs> because I had just had an encounter with a, with a close family member that had broken my heart, and I was angry. <laughs> and I was like, how could you? And yet Peter says, above all, love each other deeply, love covers a multitude of sins. God knows that that is something Jeremy cannot live out by himself. The only way Jeremy can live that out is by going to God and saying, God, I, I need a heart 
of flesh. I need your spirit to work in and through me. And I imagine I'm not the only one here who has experienced something like that. You consider families, you consider marriages, you consider um, businesses, you consider all walks of life. We run into problems where we, we experience sin, we experience its effects. Sometimes we cause sin and its effects. And yet God says, I want to replace your heart of stone that is stubborn and bent upon what you want. And I want to replace it with my spirit who will guide you in the way that you should live. Now, so uh, the work of the Spirit is, among other things, abiding presence, truth, and teaching. And this is what Jesus promises to his followers in the book of John. Peter is going to cite Joel because he wants them to know this isn't wine. This is something that, that God is at work doing. And, and it says here in the text, in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. And then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And then he goes and talks about male and female servants. The Spirit of God comes to all people regardless of your economic status, regardless of your position in society, regardless of anything, uh, gender, anything like that. But he says your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Now the word for prophecy can can mean different things depending on where it's at in the context. The word here for prophecy is the word propheteuo, which is your Greek word for today, propheteuo, uh, and it means this. It means to proclaim an inspired revelation. So you might ask yourselves, what, what's going on in the passage? Well, if you just look back, and you've probably made this connection already. As these, as these disciples have received this gift from the Holy Spirit to speak in languages, they're proclaiming the mighty works of God. They're, they're proclaiming an, an inspired revelation, declaring all of the mighty works of God amongst these people. So he continues going on down through that passage that comes from Joel, and, and, one of the, and, and he comes to this end with a very famous statement, and then everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Central to salvation is the proclamation of Jesus Christ and what he has done, repentance, and calling upon the name of the Lord. If you were to take your afternoon, really about 15 minutes, and you were to go look at the book of Joel, one of the things that Joel talks about is turning from sin. Come back to me. So even within this quotation from Joel, there's this background of repentance, turn around, go the other direction, go in a way that honors God, go in a way that God's Spirit wants to lead you and guide you in. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew part of the Scriptures, we often see God's Spirit come down for very specific tasks. What happens in Acts chapter 2 um, is, is specific tasks, yes, in this instance, but but where God would uh, anoint David with his spirit to do something, or God would anoint Samson to do something, there's no longer selective anointment. God's spirit is coming upon everyone who, who has faith in Jesus, the Messiah, and empowering them to then live in a way that honors him. So that's kind of one of the things going on. If you look at verses 22 through 24, it says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus... The Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So Peter starts, after this, his next 
sentence is, hey, I want to proclaim something to you, and that is this, Jesus, the Nazarene, you, you might know where he's from, you might have actually heard of him, in fact, they likely had, was pointed out to you because he was doing all these great things, and, and God did that through him, and he says, you yourselves know, this is not something that he has to argue for, he's like, you remember Jesus, like 50 days ago, we had this thing called Passover, you were here for that because you're obligated, according to the Torah, to be here for that. You remember what happened, right? There was that whole crucifixion thing, and, and word of Jesus just throughout the last several years had been spreading and spreading and spreading. He stresses that Jesus was a human who walked and who talked, and he wanted to remind these people of the things that Jesus did. Now, um, his hearers are very familiar, I believe, with the acts of Jesus because news of them spread throughout the countryside. Uh, I took a few minutes this week and I went back to Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel is like the other brother of Acts. Uh, same author of them both, Luke first part, Acts second part. So I went back just to look and see how many times does the text say, and news of this spread throughout the region. And I counted 13. Uh, I may have missed one, but... Um, you heard, or you see, if you go back and you look at Luke, especially the first half of Luke, there's at least 13 different times where Jesus performs a miracle or does something that people go, what on earth? And news of it spreads throughout the countryside. For example, demoniacs. You know, Jesus drives demons out of people. And I think we've got a photo for that. Um, we have lame men. We have paralyzed hands that are healed. We have other types of healings like the woman of blood. Um, we have the centurion slave being healed. We have the widow's son at Nain who was dead. Jesus goes up to the coffin. He touches it and he says, young man, get up. That was kind of a, a landmark thing that kind of spread throughout the, the region. There was a lot of feeding of people. There was blindness that was cured. And then you come to the end of the book of Luke and the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ spreads. All right, that's the backdrop to the book of Acts. News about Jesus is spreading and Peter is going to say, hey, you've heard about this. This is what you've seen. This, th this is what you have experienced. He doesn't have to make the thing, that, or the, to, to make the statement of, there was once a man named Jesus, and he did this. They were there. They saw it. They knew it. And the disciples were upfront and personal with all of this. So he talks about that, and then he goes to verse 23, and it says, though he was delivered up, this man, Jesus, who was a man who did all these wonderful things, he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. And he says, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So you have Jesus, all the works he does, and then he takes these two things that can be a real struggle for us sometimes. He takes God's foreknowledge tied with the acts of lawless men. All right? God's foreknowledge, that God was sovereign over all of these things. And in fact, not only was he sovereign, this was part of his plan, but then he takes this, by the way, you don't have any excuse. Just because this was part of God's plan doesn't give you an excuse because you, he says to the Jewish people, you use lawless men, you use Gentiles, you use the Romans to crucify him, an act of terrible wickedness, all right? I'm not going to try to explain God's divine sovereignty and the choices that man makes today. That's for another time for us to ponder and think about. But frequently in the text, those two things are placed side by side. Nowhere is that seen more sharply than in Jesus' death, determined by God, yet enacted by wicked men. But take hope, because God is sovereign. Nothing will thwart his ultimate plans and purposes. 
And this extends even to the power of death in the grave. And if you look at verse 24, it says, God raised him, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held, is what mine says. It can mean control. It was impossible for God to be held back, to be restrained, or to be hindered. All right? There was no way that it was going to hold Jesus back from being raised from the grave. So there's those two things. God's, God's um, sovereignty, man's uh, responsibility for their actions. And I think one of the reasons he says that is because he needs them to understand you're not perfect, by the way. Um, and that sin, that sin that you were a part of, separated you from God. And the same is true for us. Sin separates us from God. And without God's redemptive initiative, without God's redemptive work in our life, we would be forever separated from God without hope of being reconciled to God. So Peter makes that statement, and then he goes and he starts talking about David. Now, um, you find in the Psalms uh, a lot of messianic Psalms, Psalms that point forward to when the Messiah would come, what the Messiah would do, and you find it in other places than just the Psalms. But Peter's going to go to the Psalms right now. And so in verses 25 through 35, Peter references, and he shows the fulfillment of Psalm 16. And he uses verses 8 through 11 to, dis, to, to talk about it when he quotes it with reference to Jesus the Messiah. Now, if you were to go look at Psalm 16, um, David says this. He says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. All right, he's talking, he's talking to God, which is second person, but he's talking on behalf of himself first person. All right. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my conscience instructs me. I keep the Lord in my mind always, is what David says. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is the whole context. Therefore, my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. And then he says this, you will not allow your faithful one. Now, for all this time he's been talking about, you will not with me, you will not with me, you will not with me. And then he says, you will not abandon your faithful one to see the pit. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy, and in your right hand are eternal pleasures. All right? Peter didn't see David as being the one fulfilled by your faithful one. He's not talking about himself there. Rather, Peter, and I, th I think David knew this too, um, when he's saying, God, you're my portion, you're my blessing, you hold my future, he places his hope in his resurrection in the Lord based upon not, not himself, but he says, you won't allow your faithful one to see the pit. You won't allow the Messiah to stay in the grave. Peter ties this prophecy to the resurrection of Messiah, Jesus. And, and so he, he does something interesting there too. Um, he says, brothers, in verse 29, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, if David's body had been the one saved from the pit, he wouldn't be buried just a stone's throw away. They all know that. So they're like, mm, you're faithful one. Who's he talking about? Could this be then that Jesus fulfilled this because Jesus was in a grave and now he's not? 
And they were witnesses of that. Messiah Jesus is also the one who is spoken of in Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is something else that Peter is going to quote. So um, verse 30, I'll just read it for you and we'll get to Psalm 110 in just a sec. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants, of which Jesus is a descendant of David, on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. Verse 32. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of that, of this. Therefore, he says, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out, what has he poured out? He's poured out the Holy Spirit, what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, or the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter is telling his Jewish audience in no uncertain terms that this Jesus, who they saw live, who performed miracles, who was crucified, who has died, who was buried, and who was raised to life, is none other than the Messiah. He's none other than the Messiah, who is now seated at the right hand of God in power and glory. As Dr. Michael Rydelnik states, he says this, he says, Peter cited Psalm 110 to support Jesus' exalted status of Messiah. All right? There is coming a day when Jesus will rule and reign on this earth in perfect righteousness. But even though that day is yet to come, until then he is seated in power and glory at the right hand of God with all of the enemies under his feet. Now, verse 36 is kind of a great summary verse uh, for this section. It says, therefore, whenever you see therefore, you say, why is it therefore? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, this truth is realized by the reality of Jesus' works, by the resurrection, and by exaltation. Something, this is something that the crowd had not fully put together before. To them, Jesus may have been a man who was crucified and died. Did he raise? I don't know. They saw the amazing things that he'd done. They, they didn't know how to put all this together. And Peter shows how Old Testament scripture points forward to exactly what Jesus came and exactly what Jesus did. Um, he wants them to know this message not just as head knowledge, but deep within their bones. That Jesus came, he performed wonders, he taught, he died, he was buried, and he is raised. And we look at Jesus and we see him as the fulfillment of Hebrew scripture, that he is the Messiah, the one who has come for the salvation of sins. Now, in verse 36, there's two really important words, um, Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah. So you have the name of Jesus, and then you have these, these descriptors to help you understand the name of Jesus. And it's Lord and Messiah. Now the word Lord carries the overtones of kingship and authority. It carries the overtones of kingship and authority. And during a time in which common parlance was Caesar is Lord, um, Peter's essentially saying, hey, by the way, Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
And that's kind of revolutionary given the time that they were living in because it ascribed to Jesus as that of being one with God and having kingship and authority and dominion over all the earth. So you have the word Lord, which is a powerful word. Then you have the word Messiah. Yours might have Christ, same thing. It means the anointed one. It refers to how God has demonstrated his power to save in Jesus, the God-man, who came to save and has saved and brought salvation by what he has done by dying on the cross and being raised back to life. Now, names in the Bible are important, all right? N names are really important in the Bible. Um, they disclose the nature of the person who bears the name. And so even in, in ancient times, knowing the name of gods, lower, lowercase g, is how uh, the ancient people would seek to honor them and to secure their aid. So if you wanted water, you would go to this god, and you would have to know their name because you'd have to know who you were trying to beg for water from. And if you wanted the sun, you'd have to go there, though in Israel the sun's there all the time. But um, you'd have to know that. If, if, if it was fertility, if it was protection, if it was power, if it was any, any of those and more, they would have a God that they would go to for that because within the name of that God, that, that's who they would go to to secure their aid. And Peter is saying here, Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. He's both exalted over all and he is the one who is anointed and who has, came, who has come to save you from your sins. And so he's, he's tying these names to the name of Jesus. Central to salvation and being in relationship with God is calling upon this name, and the name describes the character, what God does, all right? What God does. And so Peter is actually going to say, um, there's a name that you need to call on. There's a name, and only one name that you need to call on to go to for salvation. He says, earlier in verse, chapter two, or chapter 2, verse 21, and it shall come to pass from the book of Joel that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're going to look at it next week, but in verse 38, Peter says to them, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's other places in Scripture that talk about the name, but the name describes what that person does. And Peter says, that's the name you have to go to because only Jesus can do that. So I want to ask you a question as we close here today. I invite our worship team to come back up as we close with one last song. What name do you go to? Or whose name do you go to is maybe the better question for you. If you were to bank everything you have on a name, what name would that be? What name would that be? Have you gone to Jesus, who is both Lord and Messiah, for forgiveness of sin? I pray that you have, and if you haven't, we'd love to be able to help you with that. Let me ask you another question. Whose name do you bear? Whose name do you bear? Because when you walk out of here, if you're a follower of Jesus, you bear a name. You bear a name, because you've called upon the name of Jesus, whose name do you bear and how do you bear that name as you leave? Because if you don't bear that, if you don't think about this, if you and I don't think about this, we could bear that name in a lot of ways that are not consistent with God. 
This is where God's Spirit comes in because God wants to write His Word upon your hearts as the Holy Spirit lives in and dwells you, giving you the power to do what is good and the knowledge of what is good. What name do you go to and whose name do you bear? Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we bear the name of Jesus, those of us who have placed all of our faith, all of our trust in the one who is both Messiah and Lord. And God, we, we humbly confess that we are in desperate need of your grace today. We're in desperate need of your spirit to teach us and to guide us into truth. And so, God, we, we yield all the ways in which we fight that in our lives. We yield, God, all the ways in which we want to hold on to our own self-sufficiency, our own pride. The things we want to see done, God, we give those to you and ask for the filling of your spirit so that the word of God might be written upon our hearts. so that the word of God would take action in our lives and how we speak to one another and how we, how we think and how we act at work, the, the ethics that we bring to school, how we go about our everyday. God, may your spirit guide us for the glory of the one who is seated next to the right hand of God the Father in power and authority. Jesus, who is both Lord and Messiah.